When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Toolkit Depot Studio, Sports Day with Peter Vlahos. For Kia, the eight-seat Kia Carnival, a grand utility vehicle. Yes, a very good evening, everyone. Welcome to Sports Day. It is a Tuesday. Great to be with you after what was, let me tell you, a pretty late night last night. Great working with uh, former Socceroo, of course, played in the 2010 World Cup, also in the Premier League with the likes of West Ham and Hull City. Richard Garcia was my uh, analyst last night. Uh, we were there till around about 2.30 this morning, uh, bringing you coverage of Senegal versus Netherlands in the World Cup. A 2-0 win to the Netherlands. Uh, following what was an emphatic 6-2 win by England over Iran. And the games, of course, concluded last night with a one-all draw between the United States of America and Wales. So the 2022 FIFA World Cup uh, right underway now. And very shortly, in fact, at 6 o'clock tonight, uh, day three gets underway. Uh, Richard Garcia tonight will be joined by Ashley Morrison to give you coverage of Argentina versus Saudi Arabia. Of course, the one we're all waiting for is at 3 o'clock uh, local time, that is our time, tomorrow morning when the Socceroos make their debut in this tournament in Doha and they take on the champions in France. And uh, we'll have to wait and see. And I'll be speaking to Clint Bolton in just a moment. Now, Clint Bolton is a very good analyst uh, of Australian football, played over 300 games in the National Soccer League and then the A-League and also represented Australia as well in goal. And in fact, in 1995, as a youngster, he represented Australia at the under 20 level and they played the World Cup in Qatar in 1995. So when I asked Clint the comparison of when he went there some 27 years ago to what we're experiencing now. So World Cup news and Clint will preview the Socceroos chances against France. He'll join us shortly on the program. And then a little bit later on, uh, something a bit different actually. I was reading a magazine article about a guy that's probably been more influential in the world of tennis than one single individual, probably in the last half century. His name's Nick Bolateri, and you would have heard about the Nick Bolateri Tennis Academy in Florida in the United States of America. Now, there was a Instagram posting by his daughter a couple of days ago suggesting that Nick had passed away or was on his way to that great tennis court 
in the sky at the age of 91. And then Nick's jumped on and cancelled that out, saying, no, I'm fine, everything's okay, okay, I haven't been in the best of health, but I'm still hanging around. And I got thinking about Nick Bolateri, who's been responsible for the development of the likes of Andre Agassi and Boris Becker and Monica Sellis, and it just goes on and on. The production line has been significant over many years when it comes to the world of tennis. And there's a West Australian that actually was recruited by Nick Bolateri and worked seven years at that academy. Uh, and we're going to talk to that gentleman a bit later on in the program. It's fascinating listening, so we're looking forward to that. Let's just update the cricket that's happening at the moment. We've got the third and final one-day international between Australia and England being played currently at a pretty sparse MCG. Certainly the crowd hasn't turned out there. Uh, Australia, by the way, brilliant with the bat. They scored five for 355. There was a bit of rain, so the 50-over match was shortened to 48, but they still mustered up five for 355 on the back end of an incredible opening partnership between Travis Head and Dave Warner. Now, Travis Head clobbed 152 off 130 balls, hit 16 fours and four sixes before he was dismissed. 152 he made, and his other opening partner, Dave Warner, made 106 of 102 balls, and he hit eight fours and two sixes. In fact, their opening partnership yielded 269, which was just incredible. And in reply, England chasing their first win in this ODI series against the Aussies. 356 is the target, a one for 48 in the 10th over, so pretty much a sales uh, snail's pace. And in the Sheffield Shield match at the SCG today, uh, WA were in a bit of trouble. They got to 233 in the end. So it stumps on day one after WA won the toss and elected to bat all out for 233 against New South Wales. It's five past five. Uh, this is Sports Day with Peter Vlahos on this Tuesday. You can join us anytime on the temperate bedshed text line 0487 736 I like it, Lee. I like it. Do it again. 0487 736 736. And as we go to the break and come back with Clint Bolton to give us his thoughts on how the Socceroos are likely to fare at 3 o'clock tomorrow morning our time against France. Glenn Maxwell, actually, the Australian all-rounder, has spoken about the accident that has cost him representation in this ODI series and also the summer. Now, he's hoping to get back from a fractured leg or a broken leg for the Indian series in February, but today he declared actually how the accident happened. It was so innocuous. Um, I was at a 50th uh, with a couple of my old Fitzroy Doncaster friends. Uh, we all had our wives there. Um, and one of my mates, who was also one of my school teachers, um, we were sort of laughing about something and I sort of almost pretended to chase him off somewhere. And outside it was just raining just a little bit and it, they didn't really have a grass backyard they had synthetic grass and it was only just a small little area just around the corner and I, I reckon we both took about three or four steps out there and both slipped sort of at the same time I just got my foot stuck a little bit and he fell unfortunately at a, a really bad angle and landed straight on my leg and it just snapped like I, I heard and felt every part of it and um yeah it was pretty painful. I was sort of screaming a bit and um, and he was like, please tell me you're joking. Please tell me you're joking. Um, and I was like, and then I just sort of hit this ultimate calmness of like shock. I'm just like, nah, I've just broken my leg. I'm pretty sure I've 
both the bones are broken. I don't think I should move. Can you please get my wife? <laughs> um, so then, and because it was still really early, it, was, it wasn't that late. I was on the phone to the doctor trying to work out what I should do. And um, I, was in, I was in a pretty clear state at that stage. And, and I think I was laying, I was laying on outside. They got out, they got out like this mini sort of tent gazebo to sort of cover me from the rain because we were outside and they didn't really want to move me. Um, just while they were, we were waiting for an ambulance as well. So there was a, about a 40 to 50 minute wait of me just laying outside um, until we, until we sort of made that we made a couple of phone calls to a couple of doctors um, who advised that it would be okay for me to move. And um, Vinny went and got my car, drove it around uh, to the front um, and two of the guys ca uh, carried me outside and, put me in the back seat and that was one of the most painful drives I've ever had in my life trying to hold my foot off the ground um and basically on no painkillers as well so that was um, that was quite interesting it was about a 45 minute drive to the hospital that they recommended Welcome back to Sports Day WA with Peter Vlahos. And the excitement is starting to build. At 3 o'clock tomorrow morning, our time, Western Standard Time, the Socceroos will make their debut in the 2022 Qatar World Cup. And they take on the might of France. And everybody really doesn't know what to expect. Some are saying that we may be able to challenge France and even maybe get something out of it. Others are saying, keeping our fingers crossed, it's not a blowout. And the French uh, turn it on and give the Socceroos a bit of a uh, debut lesson in this World Cup with matches against Tunisia and Denmark to come. Well, a man that was one of the most experienced goalkeepers in the history of the National Soccer League, uh, which, as we know, preceded the A-League, he played over 300 games for the Brisbane Strikers, Sydney Olympic, you know, Parramatta Power. He won two A-League championships with Sydney FC, but he also represented Australia as well and spent a bit of time in his youth career at Aston Villa. We're talking about Clint Bolton, still involved in football, still involved in the media. And what we try and do here on this program uh, during the World Cup is get uh, varying opinions from individuals. And we've decided to track down Clint and he's made himself available. Clint, thanks for your time. Pleasure, Peter. Which way do you see it going? I suppose we're in the unknown. We're in the twilight zone. What sort of socceroos are we likely to see tomorrow morning our time? You would not believe the coincidence there by referencing the Twilight Zone. I just watched an episode <laughs> of Cursed Films, which was highlighting the Twilight Zone and the tragedy on set of that movie. There you go. Ago. Isn't so, that bizarre? Oh, that is ridiculous timing. Um, Socceroos, well, I think you, you introed it perfectly. This could be anything, first and foremost. Um, but I am genuinely... And I don't easily say these things about much. I'm a, I'm a bit of a cynic, and but I can see a realist, consider a realist. But I am genuinely optimistic about the Socceroos' chances, not only against France um, shortly, um, but our chances to get out of the group. So I'm in a good place with the Socceroos at this World Cup, and and I say that mainly because of circumstance and psychology. I think we can all agree that. Talent-wise, they're, you know, they're well down the pecking order as far as the teams at this World Cup go. So 
So what they, they get, what they lack in talent and ability, they're going to have to make up for in other areas. And I think what's really set them up perfectly for this particular tournament is the fact that they've gone through a World Cup qualifying campaign and based themselves where they actually are at now, at the Aspire Academy in Doha, in Qatar. So they have good, good experience at this particular country, in this particular country, um, playing there. Uh, they based their home games there during this recent World Cup qualifying campaign. So I think this sets them up well. They're quite settled. A couple of injuries aside, I think they're, they're set up pretty well. And and when Arnie talks about belief, you know, belief's the word that's thrown around. And in most circumstances, you know, it's it's a privileged term that doesn't mean a lot. But in this in this case, I actually buy in to what Arnie's saying, and, and it's backed up by the players and their and their words and actions and attitudes. So I'm very much in the in the uh, camp of optimistic about their chances. Now, you know Graham Arnold fairly well. In fact, you probably mm-hmm. know him really well. Do you think this will make or break him as a manager? If Australia really struggle, uh, it may be uh, a goodbye situation for Arnie. If all of a sudden they perform well on the world stage, then there's no chance... There's some chance, I should say, that Graham Arnold may even follow in the footsteps of Ange Postacoglu and maybe coach in Europe and beyond. That is a situation I hadn't even thought of, to be fair, Peter. But do you think that it is a possibility? Yeah. And do you oh, think absolutely. Arnie, you know Arnie, do you think Arnie would be keen on a challenge like that? Yes. Yes, I think any coach, and I've had many ex-teammates that have gone to be coaches in in the A-League now, currently, and also overseas. And it's just like being a player. You want, you want to get to the absolute peak of, of your, you know, your profession. So any coach, whether it be Arnie, uh, Ange, or any other coach going around the A-League, will want to coach at the highest point possible. And World Cup aside, you know, when you look at club football, Europe's where it's at. So I don't think Arnie would be any different. Um, but it was a good question. I hadn't even thought about Arnie continuing on beyond beyond this World Cup, I just felt like a natural, this would be the natural conclusion to his tenure and then someone else would take up the reins. But maybe he does continue on if they, mm. they perform well. I don't uh, really know. Well, he's still young enough. There's no question about that. And he's done an enormous job in getting against expectations mm. the Socceroos to Qatar. The big concern that I have, uh, Clint Bolton, is, and of course you're a goalkeeper trying to stop goals, is the ability of our forward pack to maybe score enough goals to win matches. Is that a concern when, you, of course, you're bringing in what is an X factor in an 18-year-old who hasn't played uh, a fully professional game yet from a start in Garang Qual from uh, the Central Coast Mariners? Is that throwing darts at the board? Or do you think that Arnie knows something about this kid that may deliver on the big stage? Yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's a gamble by any means. I think he's form off the bench. When you think about the World Cup, there's only 11 out of your 26 that start, but you always need players coming off the bench that can make an impact, can be game changers. So, Grenquall is just a natural fit for me because that's what he's been doing, the Central Coast. So, it makes perfect sense that it would take someone like him to not start matches, but bring him off the bench and have an impact. So, that's that's there. Um, but your point about strikers is, is very, it's valid. You know, it's, it's the case of not only putting teams under pressure, um, finding ways to create chances, but who's going to score? We don't have a, a great track record of of a player that bangs in goals, can you know, consistently for the Socceroos, and we don't have one in this squad 
in recent history that's done that as well. So it's not unlike a lot of teams at the World Cup now. You know, just came off watching Senegal and Holland, uh, for example, overnight, and, and both those teams struggled. You know, Senegal without Sadio Mane and, and the Dutch without a, a really recognised striker. So it's not, it's, not a, it's not a problem that Australia will face alone at this World Cup. So you've got to compensate for that by, you know, just finding those players that can make a difference and not necessarily score a bagful, but score pop up and score goals. And we've got enough players that can do that. You're an outstanding, you're an outstanding goalkeeper in your time. Let's talk to about Matty Ryan, the skipper, and how important mm. he's going to be in the lineup. And were you surprised that Mitch Langerant wasn't included in the squad? Massive surprise. I think I'm like everyone else. I was just pretty much shocked by the decision and. And in reflection, was just trying to find a reason why it happened. And the only reason I can I can think of is that that Arnie has has gone chips in on Matt Ryan and has has done pretty much since he took over the Socceroos. To be fair, and he doesn't want Matt Ryan to feel threatened whatsoever, uh, because you think about which player or players uh, Australian players have played consistently for their club over the last few years, there's none doing better than Mitch Langerak. So on one hand, I'm like, it's only his decision. He's backed it in. If it's a case of just Matt Ryan feeling as comfortable as possible, then maybe I can see a point. But I'm just gutted for Mitch because Mitch is a gun keeper and he's proven in his time at, in Japan that he can do it on the biggest stage. So he's a big miss for the Socceroos. But... To be fair, we move on. I think it adds pressure to Matt Ryan, um, ironically, because we're talking about it. We're always talking about it, so it's always in the media. Any misstep by Matty from here on out at this World Cup, the question will come up again. Same question. So it can have a, the opposite effect in a lot of ways. So I hope it turns out all right for Matty, who's been really good for the Socceroos in the last few years, no doubt about it. So we'll wait and see, but... It feels like a massive gamble from Arnie and one that could could backfire. A couple of general questions before we let you go. I saw a documentary actually last night leading into the, I think it was the England-Iran game, uh, about the evolution of Qatar as a nation and how it's come on in the last 20 to 25 years and how it's opened itself up, particularly to Westerners. Now... You played with the Australian under-20 squad in the 1995 mm. FIFA World Youth Championship in Qatar. What sort of yep. country was it like then, almost 30 years ago? Well, hard, really hard to, to reflect on that time. It was such a long time ago. But you're right, 95, the World Cup, the under-20 World Cup was only second to, to the World Cup as far as massive global tournaments go. Even back in that day, that, uh, the under-20 World Cup was even bigger than the Olympics as far as viewing audiences go. So it's a massive tournament to be hosted in, in this really small nation. All I can remember is flying into Qatar, and it's a tiny place. It was pretty much only Doha at that time. Only seeing... The, uh, the only grass I could ever could see was the pitches that were just dotted around the place. The rest was... It was desert. It was still a place under construction. Um, but we were not... As a 20-year-old, as you can imagine, we weren't really aware of of the circumstances of the people living in Qatar at that time. Um, we weren't exposed to what goes on and the issues around human rights, around women, around LGBT plus 
people. Um, so we weren't aware of any of that. Very naive, under 20, you know, 20 year olds going to this place. It was a, it was an eerie sort of World Cup because all we'd ever known as a young aspiring football to go to World Cup was just the biggest event you could go to and massive stadiums, massive crowds. Um, we saw in 93 what happened in Australia, under 20 World Cup. That was that was brilliant stuff. So we come off that and went to Qatar where the stadiums were just eerily quiet. Mm. There, was, there was just no one there. Some, some games we played were in front of a couple of hundred people. And this was the, the second biggest tournament up until that point in the world. So it was a really strange experience. Not a lot of memories. I remember we got to the quarterfinals and lost in extra time, I think it was, to Portugal, who went on to win the thing. Uh, this was a team with Paducah, John Aloisi, um, Craig Moore. No, Craig didn't play in this one, actually, but uh, had some big names, Josip Skoko uh, and such. So it was a good squad, and we felt like we could have gone a lot further, but wasn't meant to be. Um, but, yeah, that was the first taste of Qatar bringing a massive sporting event to to their neck of the woods. So they were thinking about it even back then, you know, mm. 15 years prior to 2010 when they won the rights to this one. So so they're, they're a, a nation that is, is uh, forward-thinking. Um, we just hope and wish that they were a bit more forward-thinking about uh, their, their human rights aspects and that. So, yeah. yeah, mm. yeah interesting. interesting. Now, interesting, actually, you look back to that period when you were part of the the Australian uh, under-20 squad for that World Cup in Qatar back in uh, 1995. As I let you go, can I maybe get a prediction from you on the France <laughs> Socceroos match tomorrow morning? I think in the end you're throwing a dart at a dartboard. But what do you hope to see? You'd love to see Australia win. But saying that, that's going to be probably the longest odds. Uh, do you think we can get something out of this contest? Yes, I do. I only reflect back four years ago, Pete, when... When we uh, went close against France in the opening match of that tournament in Russia, so France are unsettled, um, slow starters. They've proven that in the past. You know, 2002 they lost to Senegal. They were Senegal were yeah, long outside, as much like Australia. Australia probably you know slightly better favourites than Senegal back in 2002. Mm. So it's there. The chance is there. Now, I'm not going to be dumb and dumber and say one in a million, um, but uh, there's a, there is a chance, a legitimate chance we'll get a result. A draw is perfect. Um, anything beyond that is beyond our wildest imagination, but a draw would be fantastic. But ultimately, a, a really great performance that we can get behind and, and look forward to the next two games in the group would be really special. Good on you, Clint. Love talking to you, mate. Thanks for joining us on the program this evening. Uh, get to bed early. Get up nice and early tomorrow, and it should be uh, certainly a spectacle, the Socceroos against France. Thanks for your time. Can't wait, Peter. Cheers. Former Socceroos goalkeeper Clint Bolton, certainly a deep thinker in the game, joining us here on Sports Day with Peter Vlahos. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Don't forget that temper of bedshed text machine. 0487 736 736. Sports Day with Peter Vlahos for Kia, the eight-seat Kia Carnival, a grand utility vehicle.
Yeah, great to have you come here. Great to have a chat to Clint Bolton as well. Uh, certainly gave us a nice little insight from his personal v- point of view on how Australia is likely to fare tomorrow morning, 3am against uh, France in their opening encounter in the group stage of the World Cup. Let's just now quickly have a look at other sport, uh, all thanks to our friends at Tyre Power, where you can buy three and get one free on selected Falcon all-terrain tyres at your local uh, Tyre Power Centre. What's interesting, uh, the Perth Scorchers today had to terminate their contract with English import Laurie Evans after the cricketer tested positive for a banned substance during a routine anti-doping test in August. Now, the 35-year-old who played 15 matches for the Scorchers last season has uh, strenuously denied any wrongdoing. An outstanding cricketer, he actually has uh, been a, a good find for the Scorchers in the BBL and would have been actually a very handy player as we head into the BBL next season. But uh, unfortunately, he's out and Perth Scorchers had to terminate Evans' deal after that positive uh, dope test. Looking at the cricket situation, uh, we've got the third one-day international being played between Australia and England at the MCG, and Australia certainly in control there. As I mentioned earlier, they posted off a rain-reduced 48 overs, five for 355. And it's worth noting, even though I mentioned at the top of the program, an outstanding opening combination between uh, Travis Head and Dave Warner. Uh, Travis Head hit 152 of 130 balls, 16 fours and four sixes. And Dave Warner partnered him and actually was the minor contributor for the most part in the partnership, but he still got to a century, Dave Warner, 106 of uh, 199 balls, uh, eight fours and, in fact, 102 balls, 199 minutes it was, eight fours and two sixes. And the partnership uh, between Dave Warner and Travis Head yielded 269 runs for the first wicket. So chasing 356 for victory, England in the 15th over, a 2 for 66. In the Sheffield Shield match today, day one of the game at the SCG between New South Wales and Western Australia. And Western Australia were bowled out just right on stumps for 233 in that encounter. 233 in the Sheffield Shield. In other sporting news, we can tell you that Lionel Messi has stressed that he's in good condition despite sitting out from a training session just days after or out of Argentina's World Cup opener against Saudi Arabia, which happens in about half an hour's time. Now, all eyes were on the 35-year-old during preparations yesterday for the group stage opener against the Saudis as he arrived in Qatar with an Achilles niggle. And the injury forced him to sit out from a club game before travelling to the Middle East. And worries were growing over the fitness of the champion ahead of uh, his country's first game. Now, the teams haven't come through as yet, but it'll uh, be interesting to see when the coverage gets underway on the SEN network, uh, the first game tonight, Argentina and Saudi Arabia, whether Lionel Messi is actually in the starting eleven for the Argentines. Well, the English fans were full of voice, weren't they? Yesterday, the travelling English fans rarely disappoint. And most Australian sporting fans would know that cricket's uh, balmy army for their chants, often directed at Aussie players during an Ashes series. But the English football fans are just as boisterous. In fact, probably more. And opened the World Cup with a new song, Poking Fun at Qatar's stadium beer band. Uh, the chant 
could become England's signature tune after Qatar banned beer sales in stadiums two days before the tournament kicked off. And Brian Vass, who uh, reported in the Sun newspaper in the UK, says, long way to home and not have a pint, but what a start for England. A real party atmosphere, and they would have been. Last night on SEN, the kickoff was 9 o'clock. This is how England defeated Iran to all of a sudden thrust themselves, even after one game, into real contention to maybe add to their only World Cup, which dates back to that home World Cup back in 1966. Here are the highlights from our SEN commentary team. England 6, Iran 2. Luke Shaw's cross comes in, the header this time, he's on target! And it's Jude Bellingham. England finally open up. It was a short cross clipped in from Luke Shaw right onto the forehead. And England's teenager has the opener. An outswinger towards Maguire, who cushions it down, and the shot comes in. And it's a belting goal from Bukayo Saka. It's the wonder kids of England, the young generation of the three Lions. Bellingham first, Saka second, towards Kane, clips it in. Could be a third, it is a third. In a flash, England have three on the board, and they are carving Iran all up. Raheem Sterling this time was set up by his captain, Harry Kane. As Sterling plays it into the feet of Saka, who wants to shuffle onto his left foot, trying to open up a yard. Bukayo Saka! Bukayo Saka has a brace. This young gun, this young English team, have got four on the board. Moharami at the right sideline here for Iran. Plays it central, laterally towards Golizade, who slips it in towards Taremi! And Iran do have one back. And what a sublime finish that was from Mehdi Taremi. It happened in a flash too. England were just caught on their heels. Meantime, there's another chance at the other end here for England. And they've scored. Marcus Rashford, his first touch came from nothing. Well, it came from the work of Harry Kane, who won the ball back, fed it into Marcus Rashford, right side of the 18-yard box, cutting in on his left foot and rolling it past the goalkeeper as England break away down the other end. Could be a 60 here for the English. Jack Grealish strokes it home from close range. It was a lightning-fast break up the right sideline, and Jack Grealish from close in. He does level England's greatest World Cup win by way of margin. 6-1. Taremi stutter steps, right-footed shots, and rolls it down the middle for Iran's second goal. And the pockets of Iranian fans that remain at the Khalifa International Stadium jump out of their seats and celebrate their team. So there you go. Six goals last night for England, uh, equaling their best ever performance at a World Cup. And they are certainly, from last night's showing, looking very impressive. An interesting comment was made to me, actually, last night. It makes sense. Normally, the World Cups are played in the summer, that is June and July, whether they are in South America, in the top part of South America or Europe. Uh, but as we know, they are now being played November, December, and a lot of the big leagues, the domestic seasons, have got underway. So a lot of the players, like in the case of English Premier League, where they may have already played 15, 16 games this season, you know, with cup games and, and league games. So they've, uh, they're sharper. They're a lot sharper. They haven't had that hiatus between the end of the season and the World Cup. And that was evident last night, I thought, in, in England's performance. So maybe that augurs well for England uh, going forward. Tonight's matches, uh, straight after our Sports Day program tonight, we'll pick up Argentina against Saudi Arabia. Then we'll have a first look in the Socceroos group to the other two combatants that will come up against. It's Denmark and Tunisia. That's at 9 o'clock tonight. So 
We need to have a look at that because the Socceroos play, as we know, France tomorrow morning at 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock on Saturday night. They play Tunisia before finishing up with the Danish. And the other games to be completed, midnight tonight, we've got Mexico against Poland and, as we mentioned, France against uh, the Aussies, Australia, at 3 o'clock tomorrow morning. So that's the lineup for the games tonight and we'll have a full wrap for you here on Sports Day tomorrow. Well, after the break... We're going to change tack completely and speak to a gentleman who was part of one of the great camps and academies when it came to world sport. You may have heard of Nick Bolateri's Tennis Academy. Now, Nick Bolateri reportedly is not in the best of health, according to his daughter, even though he's come out on Instagram suggesting, I'm not at the pearly gates yet. Uh, I'm still hanging around. He's 91. But his academy has produced and nurtured some of the biggest names in world tennis over a long period of time. We're talking decades. And there is an individual, actually, who also uh, was part of the Nick Bolateri Tennis Academy. He's a West Australian. He spent seven years there. And after the break, we speak to Rob Kildary here on Sports Day WA with Peter Vlahos. Sports Day with Peter Vlahos for Kia, the eight-seat Kia Carnival, a grand utility vehicle. Welcome back to the program. I tell you what, I was doing a bit of reading the other day and I was doing some reading about the legendary tennis coach Nick Bolateri, who I've heard a lot about, who worked with such players as Jim Courier, Andre Agassi, Monica Sellis, and he was forced to deny reports of his own death. Now, he's 91 years of age And he has been in poor health in recent years, I believe. But his daughter posted a picture on social media on Sunday showing a frail Bolateri with the statement that Dad is close to transitioning to the next place. But then Nick, in a statement on his official Instagram account, the former coach, confirmed that reports of his death had been greatly exaggerated. And he said, and I quote, I would like to assure everybody that contrary to what you may have heard, I am still alive and kicking. Not much can keep this old Italian dog down for long. I have my family here and lots of visitors, which makes me very happy. And it got me thinking that Nick Bolateri must have been a real character and is still a real character, even though he's 91 years of age. And it got me thinking, and I know that Rob Kildare actually was invited to the Nick Bolateri Tennis Academy in the United States of America and spent a number of years there. And I thought it'd be nice to get an insight into Nick, the type of person he was, and the type of tennis player that he produced on the world stage through his academy over many, many years. We've got Rob on the line. Rob, thanks for your time. No worries, Pete. Yep. What sort of Uh, character was he? He was a great man. Um... He taught a lot of these players. They would, they probably a lot of them wouldn't even understand what he taught them. You know, like I mean, Nick was great. I mean, he had a few philosophies like if you ain't happy, you can't play, or you're not going out there to do your best. You're going out there to win. And he didn't believe he wasn't a technical coach, so to speak. Like uh, he was backed up by Mark McCormack from IMG. Mm-hmm. So Mark was the the biggest sports manager. I mean, he managed golfers, downhill skiers, you know. Mark managed everybody. Players in those days would go to Bolateri's and try and get sponsored by Mark. So Mark, IMG owned 
Nick's Academy at any one time. You could look around there. I mean, if I said, you know, Agassi, Courier, Salas, Mary Pierce, Martina Hingis, Sharpova, Crickstein, Mioli, she won the French Open, Becker, Borg, and I could go on. That was where you go. Nick basically changed the game because the return of serve of Agassi and Salas was so good, they couldn't afford to serve volley. So he was part of the problem in terms of serve volleys. And luckily, Pat Rafter got through that period where there were still a few serve volleys. So Nick basically changed the game in a lot of ways. As what we got now is what big forehands. Nick was a big one on having big forehands. But he was a character. I mean, he was a funny man. And, it's uh, interesting, actually. If, if doing... you go to bowl a series, yeah. you went there and you walk in, oh, there's a guy lying on the ground with his shirt off with a sundial on his chest. Good morning, good morning. And that was him. <laughs> Getting his suntan. Oh, yeah, yeah, mate. It's interesting. I'll get, I'll get to you in a moment how the invitation came for you to go. And I was, I was actually reading a bit about Nick Bolletieri. The fact, when yeah. he was released from the Army back in 1957, to earn a Paratrooper. few... Yeah, to earn a few dollars, he began teaching tennis on the North Miami Beach courts about $1.50 per hour. And then he got a bit more accomplished and he charged $6 an hour. And his first student that succeeded was a guy called Brian Gottfried, who rose to world yeah. number three in 1977. Can I ask you, how did Nick Bolletieri and Rob Kildare come together? That's funny because I was in Lugano, Switzerland with a WA girl, Jenny Byrne. She lost the double final against Betsy Nagelson and Kathy Jordan. Betsy was Mark McCormack's wife. So we got chatting. Mark said, look, I'll be in Perth in, I think it was 86. He said, I'll catch up. I might have a lesson, you see. So we went to the Western Mail building or the court on top of the Western Mail. I forget where oh, it was. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And I gave him a lesson. He said, well, come back to the hotel. How would you like to work for Arnold Palmer and myself at our club in... Orlando and Florida. I said, oh, God, from a field of one, I had a chance, you know. But <laughs> And I said, well, that'd be great. And I said, what are the conditions? He said, write out your perfect scenario. I said, oh, OK. So I wrote out and he said, send it to me. And two weeks later, he rang up and said, yep, all set. Well, we thought we'd gone a bit too hard because, you know, we said, well, if we're going to go that far, we'd better go for it. Mm-hmm. But that included my son, Paul, going to Bolletieri's Academy free of charge. And included, you know, everything you want if you're coaching, and yeah. uh, and that's how it happened. And uh, so Mark rang up, said everything's fine. I'll fly you over, have a look at the club, whatever. It's a bit like driving into, you know, Disney World or something. You look around, and <laughs> can't believe this, you can't believe this is happening to me. Yeah. By the way, Disney World was just down the road anyway. And so there, I, but what happened then? I, I think Mark basically wanted me to coach Betsy, his wife. And I think that was a lot of the reason. So I then began coaching Betsy and travelling with her on the tour. And we had a great life. And Mark and Bets were so good to our family. And we were just like family. You stayed there, what, for seven years? Yep, yeah. Part of my thing was, uh, I'll tell you a little story. I was looking around the other day and looking for things from Nick's, when I, you know. And I come up with a photo of Nick with Andre when Andre won Wimbledon. It came in a box. I thought, oh, this would be a life-size photo of Nick. <laughs> and I opened it up, and it was a photo of Andre and Nick with Andre holding the Wimbledon Cup in the trophy. And Nick had written in, uh, I just want to thank Rob for their own family for whatever, whatever, you know, and it went on. And I thought that was really touching. 
and yeah. uh, and I'll keep that forever, obviously. So yeah, but I I then became a consultant to the academy. Basically, I didn't do much. I mean, I, somehow or other, I had this title, but I'd go up there a couple of days a week and hang around and hang out with Nick, and basically that was it. Mm. How influential do you think, when you look back, has he been on the sport of tennis uh, over a long period of time? Has he been one of the most influential individuals, do you think? Well, he had a different philosophy. I mean, you won't see him sitting in the box, standing up, thumping his chest, and, you know, all that crap, you know. Excuse the language. But he just looked... I'll give an example. When I first took Paul, he was 14, and I walked in. Hi, Nick. met Nick. Uh, Paul, you'll be on that court over there. And I looked over there. I think it was Jim Curry and Agassi, whoever. I thought, oh, my God, and Paul's looking over there and thinking, you know. But what he did, he wanted kids to play senior events for two reasons. One, they'll get better. And two, they'll start to earn a living a lot quicker if they get better younger. You know, it made a lot of sense because mm. very expensive. Doubling. It's interesting uh, that Maria Sharapova moved from Russia at the age of nine, went to Boletaris. Yelena Yankovic from uh, Serbia, age 12, went to Boletaris. And I think the Williams sisters had a pretty long-standing relationship with Nick as well, didn't they? Yeah, well, if you watch that movie, King Richard, <laughs> Nick doesn't get much from mention, right? I texted him when he was feeling better a couple of months ago. I thought you, had, I thought you coached the Williams sisters, you know? They're not, you're not in the movie much, you know? And he said, yeah, buddy. He said... Uh, Mr. Williams told me I was the best coach the girls ever had. And that, yeah, but he's talking to me. He's talking to me. But, but he, that's that, yeah, that, that's Nick. I mean, we, when, so he, when he does go to that great uh, tennis court in the sky, will there be anybody like him again? Do you think, or the system has just changed? So I don't. Much? I was thinking of yeah. You know, I was thinking of that today, Pete. I don't think there will be because. Everyone's rah, 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 and all just that. He just created that environment where kids could really fulfil their potential without any pressure. If you're not happy, like I remember one time I was, I was going to take Paul back to Australia to play in the Australian Junior Singles. Ah, buddy, let him have a holiday with his mommy and daddy, you know? So he was more into the mental side of kids being happy and really working extremely hard on the court. He had fitness trainers there as well. He, he had technically, he had those philosophies which worked really well for the players. They believed in Nick 100%. Mm. Sadly, a few of them might have criticised him after, but but he's like he he treated his players like family, right? Like oh, he rang me once in Orlando and said, "Hey Rob," he said, "I'm coming down to Orlando with Jim and Andre and whatever, playing the Orlando Classic," and he said. I wonder if you could get me in the wave pool at Disney because I coach the Disney staff, most of them. And uh, I said, well, look, I'll try, mate, but there's hundreds of people there at Disney, you know. So I rang my mate Bob Smalley, the vice president, and I said, Bob, Nick was hoping to come down and use the wave pool, but with Andre, I mean, they'd be lined up, there'd be people wanting autographs and everything. And Bob would always say, watch me. And he called me back and said, all set. And I said, what do you mean all set? He said, yeah, they can come, they can come in on a certain time. I said, how'd you do that? He says, close repairs. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. So, uh, 
Rob, thanks for giving us a bit of an insight to Nick Bolateri. As he says, he's still kicking, even though his daughter basically said that he's on his way at 91 years of age. But it just got me thinking about Bolateri's involvement in world tennis, and uh, you were very much part of the chapter and his life in tennis. Uh, thanks for joining us today and sharing some of uh, the experiences that you had. Thanks, Pete. Rob Kilderi talking about his days and his mate, Nick Bolateri, who has had such a magnificent and huge influence on tennis around the globe. That's it for the program today. Thanks to Jimmy and Lee for uh, riding the ship with us as a producer and panel operator. I'll be back again tomorrow from 5 here on SENWA. This has been Sports Day. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.